0: Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart.
1: Hello and welcome to ShopCast, the podcast that attempts to explain everything that's going on in retail and consumer-facing businesses today. I'm your host, Michael Dart. I'm a partner at AT Kearney, and I've spent the last 20 years working with investors trying to figure out where to put their money in retail and consumer-facing businesses. I've also had the privilege of working with a large number of different retailers, many of whom will be featured guests during the course of the subsequent podcasts. With Robin Lewis, I've also been co-author of two books, The New Rules of Retail, and most recently, our publication, Retail Seismic Shift which if you haven't got a copy, uh, I would encourage you to go get a copy. It's a great book and uh, actually forms the backbone of uh, many of the topics we'll be covering during the course of our show. So how will the show go? Well, we have a large number of guests during the course of uh, uh, this series. I'm uh, very happy about that, and we'll be exploring in detail what's happening in retail, why it's happening, what do you have to take to win, and who is going to win. And so whether or not you're a small business, whether or not you're an entrepreneur starting a business, whether or not you're uh, already in a very scale, large corporation, large business, we'll have topics which we think uh, will be relevant and germane uh, to everybody. Today, I'm joined by two guests, uh, Harvey Cantor, who's chairman of Blue Nile. And we'll be talking a lot about Harvey's career, as well as a lot of his latest thinking on what it takes to be successful, particularly focused around uh, one of the concepts we identify in the book as being critical, customization or personalization, as it's referred to commonly in retail today. And secondly, Dara Parker, who is a retail strategist and expert, who's been spending a lot of time investigating in the suburbs of, well, actually, main part of Manhattan, uh, what are the hot retail concepts and why it is that uh, in many places down there, apparently, people will queue up for hours to get inside. Some of these retail concepts, and so we'll see what uh, what they're doing right and what lessons can be learned. But let me start with a few ideas uh, from Retail Seismic Shift. Uh, the purpose of the book was really to try and link what is happening in society, uh, not only uh, in retail and the retail s- retail structure, but what's happening. With individuals, what they desire, what they're looking for, what's happening globally in terms of how we're sourcing goods, how we're thinking about getting production, what's happening on the technological front. And linking all of those together to say they've got all of these forces, all of these things happening in society that is fundamentally changing uh, the structure of retail today. How we shop, how we spend our time, how we work in retail. So in the same way that if you think back, um, archaeologists and historians would spend a lot of time digging through uh, different communities, different markets, whether or not it was ancient Greece or Rome, to understand how people traded goods, what they traded, how important those gathering places were in terms of political discourse and the forums for, for changing those societies. We'll be doing the same uh, with retail today and trying to think about what it says about our society, what it means about what's going forward, and, and obviously therefore what it means in terms of, of retailers being successful. So this linkage is one of the big ideas that we have in terms of, uh, in the book, of linking what's happening, as I say, in society to what's happening in retail. So let me start by just giving a few ideas from Retail Seismic Shift so you can get a sense of how we're thinking about things uh, before we get into our interviews. So the three ideas I'll offer today from the book. The first is that there is a significant supply and demand imbalance in our economy for material goods. And that this has a profound impact on many aspects of retail today. If you think about it, when you go into the mall, uh, there's so many times you go in and it's 30 or 40% price off. The whole store's on sale, get an extra discount. Uh, because you can join a loyalty program. The fundamental cause of that, we believe, is because there's an excess supply of material goods over the demand. And for anybody who's done any basic economics, you know that the way in which supply and demand equilibrates is through the price. And so if you have a big increase in supply of goods, then the price falls. That's been happening. And while I don't have time today to go through all of the factors driving that, there are some which I think are really interesting that you need to at least be aware of. The first is dematerialization. There's an incredible dematerialization going on in our economy, and it's been going on for a long time. Stated simply, we just have less and less physical matter required to create $1 of GDP or a dollar of productive output. So if you go back to 1930, it took about four kilograms of of matter to create $1. In the same real terms for that dollar today, it takes a handful of ounces. We've been substituting... Uh, physical atoms for digital electrons. We're substituting material things for services, for experiences. And that's one of the big reasons why the demand for material goods is not keeping up with the ever-growing supply which is coming through globalization. Second big idea that I'll give you today is around the fragmentation of our society, the great fragmentation. In many ways, we live in the fragmented states of America, not the United States. Across almost any dimension, particularly if you think of fashion trends, we're fragmenting increasingly into smaller and smaller tribes, ultimately a unit of one. And that's why the concept of customization and personalization is so important. But there's a lot of dimensions we could talk about, whether or not it's across race, uh, whether or not it's across income, uh, psychographic trends, uh, psychological tastes. everything is fragmenting in our society. And we'll come back to this theme later. Second, a third big trend is the technology catalyst. And we obviously all know how technology is playing an increasingly important role in society. Uh, there's a saying in Silicon Valley that software is eating the world and in many ways it is. it's creating new business models, it's redefining how we shop, it's uh, enabling uh, people like Uber, Airbnb, Amazon, et etc to completely redefine the way in which we think about, Uh, commerce, and obviously what the structure of retail is going to look like. But that's just the beginning. Technology is going to accelerate, whether or not it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, 3D printing, the blockchain revolution that's coming. There are so many different aspects that are going to impact retail and the way in which we all shop and live in the future that uh, we'll be discussing. To put all of this together, what does it mean? Well, fundamentally, when you have a supply and demand imbalance, you have incredible fragmentation, we have a dramatic shift in what the consumer values. We'll be talking about that. It means that retailers need to have a completely new mindset on how they go to market. And we believe there's a new model of what it takes to be successful. We term those the seven Cs, and one of the Cs, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about is customization. And that is obviously very important. And I'll be spending that time with our first guest going through that. And so I'm very happy to introduce Harvey Cantor, who's chairman of the board, uh, former chief executive and president of Blue Nile. So welcome to the show, Harvey.
2: Hey, Michael. It's great to be with you today.
1: Let me, uh, if it's all right with you, just give a little bit more background on, on yourself. So you, uh, uh, you know, for our, for our listeners, you've been president and CEO of Blue Nile since 2012. Uh, you're currently chairman. Uh, before that, you were president and CEO of Moose Jaw. You've had a number of leading roles in uh, in retail Executive Vice President, Managing Director of Michael Stores, President of Aaron Brothers, the, uh, the art and framing business. And you've worked at Eddie Bauer, uh, Carter, Hawley, Hale, Sears. you just had uh, experience everywhere, and you're also on the board of Potbelly. So uh, you're in the thick of everything that's going on right now, aren't you?
2: It is a, a great business. Retail is really a lot of fun and very dynamic, so it's a great business to be in.
1: So Harvey, kicking off, uh, did you think you were going to become a retailer when you were growing up? Um, and uh, I'm just curious, sort of, uh, what was the tipping point for you? What what led you down this path?
2: You know, it's hard to believe, but actually, I, I did. I you know, always planned to be a retailer. I went to undergrad with the uh, belief that I'd be a retailer. The reality is my father was a retailer, uh, a multi-generational retailer actually, and and what I saw around him and every day when he went to work and came home was really an energy and passion around his work, and I wouldn't say that I didn't see around that others, but I, I just saw so much energy by him for the excitement for what he was doing, working with people. And really the dynamic environment that retail is. One of the things I've always said that I found interesting, especially going into retailing, was that every day, looking backwards, you could ring the register every day. Today, every day, every day, you could touch something on a digital screen and ring the register. But that's really compelling, that you can see your results every day. And it was a wonderful childhood seeing him excited about work and gave me a perspective that a life in retail would be a good thing.
1: That's interesting. A lot of people... You know want to want to veer away as fast as possible from what uh, uh, what their parents did, but uh, you obviously were enamored with it and wanted to go in that direction. Do you have any um, recollections or anything particularly that leaps out from your childhood that uh, remind you of of why you started this journey into retail?
2: You know, there's a few elements that actually it's kind of interesting, but they've come to be elements embedded in my career that I think were, in fact, early experiences. Uh, things like adventure, um, change and openness to new experiences. I grew up in a family that always traveled. We camped. We did Disneyland. It's hard to believe, but we actually shopped. I remember back uh, in Minneapolis, where my dad was uh, EVP with Target in, uh, in, in a long time ago, that Black Fridays were great days. And, and that's actually when Target was owned by Dayton Hudson, and, and we were consumers. And I know it's Seems odd, but back then shopping was an experience. It still largely informs my thinking those experiences, that openness to change. Um, and my dad's days at Target. I, I remember actually going into the first floor of Dayton's department store, uh, which is now uh, under the umbrella of Macy's, if you will. But that first floor was this marvel of experience. There was theater, there was romance. Uh, it was a very engaging experience and it's hard to believe when I was young that I would say these things, but in reality, I, I was bit and uh, to the point there's multi-generations in retail, I guess it's in my blood.
1: That's really interesting. Uh, we're going to talk uh, with Dara later about what she's seeing in the, the theater of retail today. Too many people you know, seem to think that we've lost that, but it certainly was something that uh, caught your imagination and, uh, and uh, has captured you. So tell us... Um, what was your first job in, in retail? What did you do? What, uh,
2: I, uh, what I you? actually got out of undergrad and I went to graduate school. And, and surely thereafter, I was already being engaged by the company that offered me a job as an undergrad. And I think that's interesting because it talks to experience and relationship building. And, and I think that's actually a theme in retail. But I was an executive trainee at what was then Carter Holly Hill Department Stores. It's now owned, as I said, and under the umbrella of Macy's. Um, And that was my first job. I was a trainee. I um, did everything. There was a a very formalized executive training program. You spent time in the buying office, in the stores, in the distribution center. And you learned in your first eight weeks, basically in a rotational basis, a little bit of every functional entity that that is within embedded in a a department store at that time.
1: That's interesting because that doesn't really exist today, I don't think, for many people entering retail as a business. Is that right?
2: I think it's evolved tremendously. I think that there's such specialization today that while there there has to be training programs in many retailers still, I don't think the level of an executive training program with that rotational perspective is is what it was by any means back, uh, back 20, 30 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're listening to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm here with uh, Harvey Kanter. Uh We're going to be taking a short break now, but uh, we'll be... Returning to talk a little bit more in depth about uh, retail and uh, Harvey's experiences. So um, look forward to uh, uh, to continuing our discussion. The other side of the
3: break here. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? AT Kearney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATKearney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarneycom forward slash consumers dash 250. tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Hello, this is Michael Dart, and welcome back. And I'm joined today by my guest, uh, Harvey Cantor, And uh, we're talking about retail and uh, his career and and what he's learned. And, And Harvey, you were just sharing with us that your first job and your first experience is uh, a little bit in terms of the department store training. Could you shed a little bit more light? What did you learn from that?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, it was interesting that that executive training program really was diverse. And, and my placement, my first placement, was actually as a department manager. And one of the things I, I learned and actually appreciated there was no easy path. Retail is exciting, it's dynamic, and you're ever moldable. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is it, it, it really influenced really the balance of my career. I came out of that executive training program. I was a department manager in China, Silver and Crystal in santa monica california and it was hard to believe a 23 year old guy who was selling china silver and crystal i didn't know much about it and i was in santa monica selling really to the elite and sometimes celebrities of malibu but what i think it, it really helped did, you, did you just impl- out of curiosity
1: Harvey, did you grow up in malibu you didn't did you so that was no
2: a- actually i i, I went uh, as i said i my dad was with target and i was in minneapolis i was recruited to carter holly Hill in los angeles Um, Great question because it it was so diverse, but that diversity, retailers recruited all over the country back then and and put Mm. people through these training programs, and it helped create this really exciting, compelling career in retail, and it it was a great learning moment because um, being uncomfortable in that environment made me more comfortable having new experiences and learning and the adventure of those experiences, as I mentioned earlier. So um, although I zigzagged back and forth in in a lot of roles, it actually influenced my career. And I think what's really interesting about retail is the ability to move throughout a lot of different functions and businesses and, and make it what you want.
1: That That's really interesting. I, I, I sort of asked you this just before the break, but I'd like to go back on it because those programs don't exist today do they for young people and so uh, I, I was curious as you think about young people entering what what are the differences again today and, and, and how can people get that same type of experience that, uh, that you got?
2: Yeah, I don't think the, um, what I would say is the 30-year look-back executive training program exists today, but I think there are opportunities for young people to get involved, and I think the biggest thing that I would encourage anyone to first get involved in retail, because it's a great industry, but once you're in the business, to be willing to be kind of, for lack of a better way to say, it, be vulnerable and take on new experiences and learn about things, because if you have this can-do uh, attitude, for lack of a better way to say it, the roles and experiences that you will start with, although more specialized will give you great opportunity to move up the ranks, if you will, and and I think that that can do attitude is really important because in retail, you know, you're chief cook and bottle washer. That there, it's a business of leadership, and your ability to step out there and put yourself in a place to learn is really important. Mm-hmm.
1: And you've been... You know, chief cook and bottle washer, and a number of have uh, great retailers and businesses, haven't you? From Michael's Arts and Crafts, Moose Jaw, and obviously, intimately involved in uh, Blue Nile today. Um, so I'm curious as you think about, you know, your different experiences in in different retail environments. How would you compare and contrast what it's like to be in a traditional retailer, whether it's a department store versus a, you know, or, or Michael's versus a really dynamic pure play internet retailer?
2: Yeah, I think there's two elements. One, I kind of would say almost I'm preaching to the choir and from the choir because, to your point, I've been in a lot of different kinds of retailers, selling, selling a lot of different products in a lot of different channels. And that has informed my knowledge and experiences such that one of the things I would say is experience and relationships with customers probably trump everything. The ability to build an engaging relationship, traditional retailer, or modern, more digital, omni-channel retailer, that um, experience versus transaction relationship is really important. Uh, take, for instance, Michael's. Michael's uh, was in the craft business when I was there. It was uh, quite a while ago, and, and digital really wasn't what it is today. It was at the very infancy. Um, and they, they really operated in the stores, building craft projects and helping mothers who were doing craft projects for school. But they were building a relationship to be the be-all, end-all place to fulfill those craft needs. And on the other end, Blue Nile, digital merchant, mostly a pure play company, building relationship, educating and counseling consumers with respect to how to get engaged and kind of the basics of diamonds. And again, it's building a relationship to give them a trust and confidence in the purchase they're making. Mind you that one's a $20 ticket and one's thousands of dollars, but the, the core elements of what makes a great retailer great are still similar in spite of the fact one's traditional and one's very much moving into the digital arena
1: that's pretty interesting that that really is jumping from one price point of the, the arts and crafts and putting together lots of different pieces to uh, you know, as you say an incredibly emotional and obviously a very expensive purchase as well are there any you know big surprises that you had of moving from a traditional retailer to uh, to an internet pure play is there anything that stands out that uh, you didn't expect or um, you know you, you did expect I guess any uh, any real surprises there
2: yeah maybe two things that I think are interesting. One is trust building and and how important that relationship and trust the consumer has with the retailer really important the other one is for lack of a better way to say it from a traditional retailer perspective the elements of legacy within a business and the the need and challenge for those legacy based retailers to invent disrupt innovate and be creative and not sit still because in retail that cliche you either grow or you die is very much appropriate in reality for more pure play, digital-based retailers, there's much less legacy. Those those companies might be 10 or 20 years old at most, and they don't have the legacy, and they're constantly innovating and disrupting. And, and the, the challenge is how to not lose that traditional business you have, but to continue to evolve and grow. And the challenge for those disruptors is how to make sure that there is traction and a return on the investments in being a leader and not being on the bleeding edge, but the leading edge. And it is an interesting compare and contrast between the two ends of retail.
1: Mm-hmm. Could, could I ask you, uh, the first thing you said, uh, uh, I don't know if there's any more color you want to add, but uh, uh, intrigued on the, the idea of trust and how trust has has. Uh, migrated if you like from the storefront to online any any you know quick comments or thoughts just around that because it is so interesting because for a long time people just didn't trust you know purchasing online and now it seems like there's just uh, a lot of brands that have developed you know a huge amount of trust obviously amazon being the uh, the biggest one i just curious if you have any you know just quick side thoughts on that
2: i think the biggest uh, element that I that I think is really important and, and relevant is where trust comes to be, and it's actually on a continuum. It's it starts with just the product being sold and the inability to see, touch, and feel. For lack of a better way to say it, you can certainly see it on a on a phone, but it's not the same as seeing it in the store. You certainly can't touch it. It then moves to things like payment and comfort level with payment traveling back and forth, and ultimately, and then getting the product. And for Blue Nile, um, where I'm still chairman in my last real um, role, the concept of trust relative to buying a, a, a diamond online that's typically five, six, $7,000. And the confidence you have in the ways you go about building trust and whether it's the product you're selling, the certification of those items, or the way you pay for it. And you only get to misstep once and it comes back to haunt you. And so I think that's really important for any retailer to really um, expect and understand the requirements today of the consumer.
1: hmm that's really interesting. Uh, because without that personal contact, I, I think you're right. It's a uh, a lot less forgiving, or well, you know, environment online. If you if you don't establish that trust and you can't make that uh, connection and bond with the consumer, if you let them down, particularly on a, a big purchase. Um, curious, just moving along a little bit, and you know, if you're advising people, you know, who've been making the change in, you know, from traditional retailers to internet pure plays, you know, you've obviously I'm sure had a lot of different challenges, personal challenges. Thought about it. What would be some of the broad lessons that uh, you you know you might have for people about uh, navigating that path and overcoming some of these challenges? What have you seen, and and what advice would you have?
2: Yeah, you know, I I actually would tell you that I think the biggest one is not agnostic to even retail or to any company I've been at. But uh, excuse me, it is agnostic to, to any industry and to the business I've been at, which is building the team. Uh, developing leaders to define and empower teams to be accountable, executing strategy, defining KPIs and measures for success, and then getting a team to take risk and be passionate and committed. That team at, at every level has to rally around a vision and a goal and where they're trying to get to. And the, the uh, team of D players, for lack of a better way, to say it, they make incredible music together would be better than a, a singular A or a pl- couple A players on a team that can't make music together. And, and that's one of the challenges, I think, no matter what business you're running, and especially in retail where it's a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of long hours, enjoying what you do, being passionate around that, but having a team that is actually a team. You know, that, that cliche, there's no I, one in team, I in team. Um, mm-hmm. It's not about one person, it's about a team.
1: And so you think that versus that ex- a very similar challenge across you know, quite frankly, both business models and the single biggest determinant of success?
2: I, th- I think it is really in a, a critical element of success. I, I don't think there's any silver bullets, but the leadership of that team and that team rallying around what they're trying to create, uh, retail specifically is, is a team where there's there's a joke that says if you ever look back at how many hours you worked and what you were paid, you would be ashamed to, to understand that. Retail is a hard business, but it's so much fun, and you have to enjoy each other and, and the team that you're with. And so, you know, it's simple, and it's infrastructural, but it, it's really a relevant uh, conversation.
1: Mm, that's really interesting. We're going to be taking a, another break, Harvey, in a, a minute or two, uh, but I was just kind of curious... Uh, in that in short time we have before then, you were one of the probably first executives who uh, I know who saw the power, if you like, of online and decided, you know, moving across to sort of join, join some of these digitally native vertical companies. Curious, what made you decide to do that and, and what did you see and, uh, um, and what, uh, what have been, again, some of the, uh, the thoughts that you have around making that move?
2: Yeah, I know we're going to talk about personalization later, so this is maybe a great segue into that. I think that the reality is today in the environment we live, the ability to innovate and transform a company or a brand into a deeper, richer, and more profound relationship with consumers is is really the ultimate, and that – whether it's the blue Nile opportunity that joined them 5 plus years ago or or any other retailer really the willingness to take risk and innovate and bring to market unique ways to interact with consumers the ultimate way that you know we're moving down the road is personalization and one to one marketing and how do you get that accomplished what tools what software what marketing go to market strategies you have have to be married to a business and and that business has to be led by someone and be involved with a team that really believes that the relevance and importance of that
1: that's great well we're we're going to take another break now this is michael dart you're listening to shopcast and i'm talking to harvey Cantor. and when we return uh, how about we go deep a little bit on terms of personalization and uh, some of the characteristics that uh, are driving success for a lot of online
3: retailers so we'll be right back Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATCarney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. tuned in to Shopcast talking retail strategy featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back. This is Michael Dart. This is Shopcast talking everything about retail and uh, I'm here with uh, Harvey Canter. And Harvey picking up from uh where we were just before the break. I realized a couple other things I I wanted to dive into, if it's okay with you, before we get to a a deep dive on personalization. Uh, First one, I'm curious, as you think about different categories and their, you know, if you like, receptivity to going online, is uh, is there anything that you think doesn't work well online? Are there gonna be these areas that are protected from uh, Amazon and uh, all of the online players?
2: Well, I think there are businesses that, quote unquote, aren't selling product online. But I think that, you know, there are definitely businesses that you might not think of as online businesses today, but they really are in some respects. Uh, I'll give you examples. Health Club Fitness, or more importantly, Boutique Fitness. And if you look at things like Peloton or Pure Bar, both mm-hmm. today have on-demand fitness. And Peloton, you can ride online, and in Pure Bar's case, you can do um, bar online through on-demand. That's a digital interaction that is, is changing the game of how people think about businesses and interacting with companies and brands.
1: Not just about
2: selling product.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. for For those of us who aren't uh, intimately familiar with uh, Peloton uh, or Pure Bar, could you just give a little bit more colour on on what they are, what they do, and how they create that uh, uh, interaction that uh, is both that online as well as physical uh, uh, physical interaction.
2: Yeah, great question, and of course, I just assumed everyone knew these businesses, but Peloton is part of the cycling craze, and instead of getting Mm -hmm. on a road bike and going out on the street, and a lot of people prefer to stay indoors where it's a little safer, but Peloton is, is basically a spin bike at home, and they're selling spin bikes and doing a phenomenal job and having the ability to literally just jump on your iPad and get it get onto a class that's happening live as they speak, but in, in every case, it's at your home on your own spin bike. Pure Bar is a bar class that uh, I believe they have franchises all over the U.S., but in reality, I know they also have now On Demand, where if you can't make it to a class or there's not a Pure Bar facility in your home city, you can literally do On Demand, which is basically take, take part in a bar class through an iPad or on a video uh, at your home. And so, again, these are examples where a digital is really opening up the ability to interact with brands in many more unique ways than going somewhere and or, and or buying something.
1: That's really interesting. I've heard the Peloton trainers are encouraged to build their own community, you know, online, do social media campaigns, really uh, do everything that they can to connect with you know, quite frankly, a participant who they might never actually meet in person, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, isn't it?
2: Yeah, we, we've talked before about uh, now a couple of different ways, experience and relationships. And Peloton's a perfect example. You're absolutely correct. There are favorite instructors that you want to ride with. And that's the community is not just the ride itself but the other elements. But it starts and stops with what it is you're doing and that relationship one-to-one with the level of push and how hard they're working and the, the way they call and the music they play and all of those things that are really relevant to the experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've done a great job uh, building that business, and uh, uh, I must say, I, I don't own one yet, but I, uh, I'm very, very tempted uh, to actually go out and buy one. But uh, we'll see about that. Uh, curious, you know, any other lessons learned you can share on on what it takes to uh, to build a business, and, and that, by the way, could be you know both digital and traditional that uh, that you have from your experience. So, you know, they're yeah. obviously doing a great job, but.
2: I think in both cases, and and probably even more specifically today in digital, it's constant evolution, evolution, iteration, and the agility with the goal of ultimately being totally consumer centric. You have to understand that today to be successful, what, where, when, and how is up to the consumer. And our job as retailers, for lack of a better way to say it, is to make sure we're constantly pushing ourselves because the consumer is on the move. And as, as retailers, if we're not on the move, there's another cliche where every morning a lion gets up and a, a deer gets up, so to speak, and either one, either run or be eaten. And and that's the way it works in retail, grow or die. And so I think it's really important that you're constantly understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish for that consumer centricity.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. It, you know, it takes me in an area, you know, which I, I spend a lot of time in. And I spend a lot of time talking with, um, you know, senior executives in retail. And that is, can you transform the traditional retailers? As you say, you've got to be, you know, agile, you've got to be nimble, you've got to be test and learn very quickly. Um, I'm curious what you think are the biggest challenges for traditional retailers and can, can they actually respond in this environment?
2: Yeah, I, I, well, first of all, I, I absolutely think they can. I think maybe a, a great example of that is Nordstrom's um, mm-hmm. here in Seattle, and Nordstrom's is a, a great brand with an incredible equity. But they have done a, just a yeoman's job of really transitioning from a brick and mortar store to a very dynamic, interactive, internet-driven, digital-driven company. And while obviously the core of what they do is still brick and mortar, they have really managed to leverage that relationship they have and the equity with the experience and bring it to life online. And I think it's it's through the constant pushing and evolving of what that experience looks like that they've been really successful.
1: So do you think there's a future for stores then? I mean, I love Nordstrom's as well, but Absolutely. I'm curious.
2: Absolutely, and there's no question in my mind that there's, there will always be a place, and I actually think probably the lion's share of revenue in a retail business will still come out of stores. That's not to say unique entities won't be pure play or primarily digital, but on the whole, You have to appreciate that revenue from Internet-driven companies is still a very much minority, with Amazon obviously being the big gorilla. Um, But there is definitely a place for brick-and-mortar retail and that experience and the interaction and the personal touch that happens live.
1: Do you think they can recapture the theater, the imagination that you talked about from, you know, your Black Friday trips when you went with your dad and around? I mean, is that possible still? For, for retailers to, to capture?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that there are definitely stores out there that are capturing that theater. Um, and in reality, whether it was looking backwards to your point of stores that used to, like Macy's in the, in the old Italian weeks, there are stores that are absolutely doing it, um, perhaps Beta. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Beta, but Beta is one of those stores that's capturing theater and romance, selling technology. Beta is actually a, a technology store. I've been in a couple of their stores where they're helping consumers understand how to interact with technology. They say they are designing stores for discovering, trying, and I think buying the latest technological products. But when the day's done, all that means is they're helping consumers understand how to interact with technology in an experiential way. And, uh-huh. and that's happening in a storefront. And yet they're a digital company driven by technology. And so I think that theater is not going away. They're just evolving and how to become more personal and more interactive and experiential. And then integrating that into other things like the supply chain and, and, and how to interact with his buy online, pick up in store and all those kind of other elements.
1: Right, right. Since you mentioned personalization, obviously, uh, one of our key topics, could you just explain what you mean by that? And then let's spend a a moment or two, if you can, in terms of why it's so critical for retailers and and what they need to be thinking about.
2: Yeah, using um, just a simple simple example, um, personalization really means acquiring, integrating, and then using customer data. So acquiring data around customers Integrating that in your go-to-market strategies and how you interact with them, and then using that data more importantly, again, going back to consumer centricity, to create a personalized experience with that consumer. It's relevant for them. In a perfect world, it's relevant for them one-to-one, only them. In a, a less perfect world, it's relevant for people that look like them and, and directly in opposition to mass marketing and mass communication which may be irrelevant for them and for many other people that are they're still getting emails and or tv or videos pushed to them that have no bearing on what they're interested in or the timing of their needs and and caters to them in no individual way Mm -hmm. and and what do you
1: think the consumer is going to see because of all of this personalization how how are they going to experience this from different retailers
2: Uh, well in a in a Let's say the ultimate, maybe the penultimate uh, example. if mm-hmm. if I, I'll use um, a jewelry store as an example, no specific one, but let's just say i'm I'm shopping at a generalized jewelry store, and I initially started stopping shopping with them for something that was unique, and I came back and shopped with them for something else. The last purchase, or the things I've purchased, would be most relevant to, for me to come up on a website when I return. And so if I've made purchases recently in a perfect world, what would be on that homepage would be things that are important to me. Um, I could say the same, same thing about um, athletic attire. If I went to an athletic store and I was shopping for uh, athletic apparel one day and, and shoes the next day, Um, and directly in opposition to technology. If I came back the next time and was served a bunch of technology choices that were not interesting to me, I may not come back. But if I came back and looked and I bought Nike's newest shoe, which was just launched, I think, last week, and it sold out immediately, and the next great launch of a Nike shoe was something that popped up on that screen, on that homepage, the next time I came to that retailer, it would be really relevant to me if I bought that first launch.
1: Mm -hmm. That's really interesting.
2: You know, it's probably worth adding in a more lofty way, but I think equally relevant and, you know, from marketing 101 back in undergrad, you know, as Maslow said, fulfilling a customer's need for love and belonging, then creating a greater level of self-esteem and actually self-actualization. In a perfect mm-hmm. world, to me, that's the, the ultimate way that personalization comes to be. It's really making that consumer feel like they're really special, and you've done something just for them. But mm-hmm. the way that happens is, is not by magic. It's, there's a lot of data, a lot of analytics, and today, tons of software and tools to actually do that at a, at a level that's never been in place before.
1: Well, we have just a couple of minutes before our next break, but I'm curious, two last questions if you could hit them for me, which is, what does it take for a retailer to achieve this, number one? And then number two, can they can they possibly ever match Amazon's level of personalization given what it's doing with Alexa, et cetera? So in yeah. uh, a minute and a half or less
2: <laughs> – Yeah, great. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I think that the answer to your first question is, can anyone ever do that? I think it's a balancing act. The reality is a retailer is still a business. They have to produce results. I think they want to be on the leading edge in some cases, but definitely not the bleeding edge. And legacy retailers have a harder time, more current retailers maybe have a a lower uh, hurdle to get into that. But I I think it's definitely possible. The reality is you have to figure out where to prioritize and where the biggest bite of the apple is. But I'll give you a simple, really simple example to paint that picture, email, email segmentation. If you send emails out and as a company you send one kind of email out to everybody, that's mass marketing. Well, it's not personalized one-to-one marketing. if If I bought something from you, and you send an email out to me that's unique to me men's clothing, men's shoes, as opposed to we're having a sale on apparel. It's at least a different level of marketing that I think is very elementary and possible. So I think that's definitely doable. Your second question about Amazon I think mm-hmm. that the reality is Amazon is obviously a very large company doing incredible things and really one to one marketing. But the reality is their model, and I Certainly, I'm not going to speak on what they're good at or bad at, but their model is unique to what they do. And they're general merchants. They have incredible service and incredible convenience. Many people are using Prime. And there's lots of ways that retailers can be more unique and more specific and more personalized in category and experience and interaction that is more specific. And I think that's a way that you can compete against Amazon and at least feel like you're bringing a differentiated perspective to market, which is really critical, and especially in personalization.
1: That's great. That's really great. Harvey, I want to say thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, if uh, any of our listeners have questions about this segment or uh, want to learn more, uh, feel free to email us at shopcast at atkarni.com. That's A-T-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y.com. And uh, uh, we'll be sure to follow up. And uh, Harvey, thank you again for participating. We're going to, after the break, switch gears and hear what's working in downtown Manhattan in the retail storefront. So uh, stick around for that. But uh, I really appreciate your time. So thank you. Thanks,
2: Michael. Great spending time with you. Appreciate it.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Kearney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atkearney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back. This is ShopCast, and I'm Michael Dart, your host. And uh, we are now going to spend a little bit of time talking about what is hot in retail and what is working. I'm pleased to be joined by Dara Parker. Uh, Dara is a retail strategist, spent uh, her career working for a large number of different companies, from Liz Claiborne, the Jones Group, uh, Costa Barcelona, British Hair Tools Company, GHD, did I get that right, Dara?
4: You did, stands for Good Hair Day.
1: Good Hair Day. Uh, Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for spending the time.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So you, uh, you, you're in Manhattan, you grew up in Manhattan, shopping Manhattan, and uh, love the theater of retail, is that right?
4: Absolutely, and I'm a born and bred New Yorker, grew up um, with, and don't tell anyone, my mom letting us play hooky to see the Christmas windows because she didn't like waiting in line, Um, and grew up in my teens uh, shopping for clunky black shoes like Doc Martens in the Village and Soho Boutiques and shopping along Columbus Avenue with my friends where it was all about fun and discovery and exploration.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So you've been uh, you've been watching and probably living the retail shifts that have taken place with the bankruptcies, you know, all of the CEO changes that have taken place, and there's been a number of store closures. But your latest trip, your field trip in Manhattan, led you to find some retailers who are incredibly hot right now. Is that right?
4: Absolutely. And I mean, I've been doing strategy and business development for huge thousand store brands as well as one-store chains um, for the last 15 years or so. So I've been professionally involved in retail as well as a spectator um, as a New Yorker. And so last week I spent some time in Greenwich Village, Soho, and Nolita um, seeing some of the newer retail concepts that are out there, some of which started um, as digitally-only brands um, or what are now called digitally-native vertical brands, where they mm-hmm. started online and they produced their own product.
1: Wow. And tell me, you, you, you said beforehand, we are just chatting beforehand, that you went to one store And you were told it was a two to three hour wait to get into that store. Is that right?
4: Absolutely. That line stretched around three city blocks. Um, It was for Supreme, which started in 1994. So it's not a brand new brand. Um, But it now has 11 stores, and it's become sort of this culty cool brand um, that defines cool by not being buying into any other definition of cool. Um, You know, they say that their formula is that they have no formula. Uh, but they're about sort of they play at the intersection of streetwear and luxury, um, and they really are true to who they are. Uh, they do collaborations with other brands but they're really thoughtful about who they collaborate with. Um, they don't follow a seasonal calendar. They just drop product as they call it, um, when they well, want to, when they feel ready to produce it. Can you explain
1: to me just for, you know for those of you who don't know, what what is the combination of luxury meets streetwear? Can you just help me help me
4: understand what that is? Sure. So streetwear um, has always traditionally been um, sweatpants and jeans and t-shirts, oftentimes with logos, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's really focused on certain brands. Stussy was one of the first brands to play in that space. Um, Mm -hmm. But Supreme recently worked with Louis Vuitton on a collaboration um, that brought luxe elements more into play.
1: Interesting. So so you've got this exclusive sort of Street culture that I and 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 by the way, how old were the people who were you know queuing up two to three hours to get into these stores? I mean, I assume it's teenagers, right?
4: These are mostly teenagers, yeah.
1: And and how much does an average price point for something like Supreme cost?
4: It can go up to tens of thousands of dollars, but you can also buy into the brand at a much lower price point. You know, sort of in the forty fifty dollars range.
1: Right. So this sort of plays to one of the themes we talk about in terms of building a brand, which is having, you know, a, you know what I term a tantalising exclusivity a little bit, which means that, in that great fragmentation which I, I spoke about at the beginning of the show, you've got lots of little niches, and this this seems to be filling, a pretty a pretty important niche of offering, you know, exclusive product streetwear to kids, and they'll wait for hours. Are there other examples of hot brands that uh, are just filling great niches right now, and that uh, that you saw on your travels?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the last thing I think to note about Supreme is that they purposely don't produce enough product. And that's part of what really drives that line building. Um, It makes the product really covetable. Um, And it's interesting because they're not maximizing their business, and they're very open and honest about that. Um, But Hmm. they really want to make sure that what they do is small and special. Um, Other brands that I saw, let's see, Everlane is looking terrific these days. Um, Everlane Everlane sells... They're apparel, footwear, and accessories for um, men, women, and children. Yeah. And their whole thing is that they're about transparency. So they tell you exactly um, where, the, where the fabrics come from, which factories they've used, the costs that go into each piece. It's all about being transparent and being really honest with the customer. Hmm. So, so the clothes there are not trendy. They're really sort of timelessly minimalist. It's really the best t shirt and the best sweater. It's a really tightly edited assortment. It's kind of like what J. Crew used to be. Um, and the same, the physical score has that same feeling um, of transparency. The product's displayed really simply, but there's no clutter of signage. So, I mean, you go into a lot of stores and they've got, a, they've got a retail price and then they've got a markdown slash through it and they have a sign that says 40% off on top of the rack, And you have no idea what you're paying or what you're really getting. And so Everlane is the polar opposite of that. Um, And the design of the store, it's really clean. uh, They're really high ceilings. And it really, all of that lends to the feeling of the brand being really open and honest.
1: Hmm. And it was working? I mean, because it seems such a basic concept in many ways, but, you know, people love that transparency and that it works and they're buying this stuff.
4: It really does. Um, it really does. I think, you know, you see a lot of these digitally native brands said, we're never going to open stores because they looked at what traditional retail stores look like. You know, long lines, over-assorted, lots of clutter, messy dressing rooms. And they said, why? why would we do that? And what a lot of them came to recognize is that you actually really build your consumer relationship through a physical store. Um, and so a lot of these companies who really began having a digital interaction with a consumer have now since opened stores where they're able to really um, have a conversation with that consumer, and you see higher conversion rates. So, you know, online, a conversion rate, i.e. meaning a customer actually making a purchase, is in the low single digits. But with a store, it can be 20 or 30%. And with some of these retailers, I mean, half the customers coming into the store may be walking out with shopping Mm
1: bags. So tell me, uh, the theater, the fun... Tell me about the stores that make shopping fun.
4: Okay, so you're seeing this a lot in beauty. Um, Glossier is one of the best um, examples of that. So it started online. Um, It really came, developed organically out of a blog called Into the Gloss. And they just opened a shoppable showroom in Manhattan. So again, we saw a line out the door and lots of shopping bags leaving. Um, And what Glossier has done, I mean, they've been incredibly transparent in saying we're only going to produce product categories where we feel like we have real expertise. Um, And they've recently uh, introduced skincare along with beauty or makeup. Um, And they have set up the store so that it's all about trying on products. So there are these small bar-height tables, and you have Mm -hmm. staffers behind them who are there to help you. And it's all about trying on products. I mean, there's no actual product to buy on the selling floor. Can you believe that?
1: Is that right? There's no product?
4: No product that you can actually buy. Instead, you try something on, and if you like it, the salesperson who's there and is also talking to you and giving you all sorts of product knowledge, uh, telling you how to wear things, making suggestions, um, she'll ring you up, and she'll use a handheld device, and it transmits to a back room. And, you know, a couple of minutes later, they call out your name, and you get this really pretty pink and clear bag. Inside of it is this really cute pink pouch that has your purchase – And you get some free samples, and you get some really cute stickers. um, And the whole thing is a really fun experience for a consumer. It's the polar opposite of that plain brown Amazon box that you get. um, And it allows salespeople to really just focus on working with consumers and talking about product. Um, So it was super fun. And you see girls all over showing each other different makeup, um, things that they're trying. um, And it really is a fun and sort of community-building experience. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. Dar, we're not going to have time to cover all of the, uh, all of the great places. If, uh, uh, if you're all prepared to, I'd love to have you come back and share other ideas and other things that are working in retail, because in uh, a time when there's just so many challenges for so many retailers, hearing some of these anecdotes, these stories, what's working, and um, what's likely, quite frankly, to become uh, scale competitors to a lot of folks would be, uh, would be really interesting. So uh, um, if you're up for it, I'd love for you to uh, – Uh, to come back at some point. I'd
4: absolutely love to. We didn't even get to talk about the trampoline.
1: Yeah, no, uh, (laughs) uh, at least uh, I hear you didn't jump on it, but uh, we'll talk about that next time. (laughs) To be continued. This is is, uh, Michael Dart, and uh, this is ShopCast. And uh, as I say, we'll be covering a lot of these topics uh, throughout the course of the podcast. If you have, again, any questions, any opinions, want to contact us, uh, please send an email to shopcast at 80 carney.com and uh until next time uh, and uh, our next guest will be uh professor mark cohen from columbia business school who'll be talking about the future of retail uh, but until then uh, have a great week thanks
0: Thank you for listening to ShopCast, Talking Retail Strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.